Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What's your connection to craft making, like sewing, knitting, or quilting? When I was a child, my mother learned to crochet from a friend, and between working double shifts as a nurse, she'd crochet these beautiful afghans. I still have some of them today. She taught me to crochet too, but the hobby didn't stick with me. The craft community includes people from all kinds of backgrounds, but not all of them have felt welcomed, especially crafters of color. Today, where we live, author Jen Hewitt joins us. She's written a book called This Long Thread, Women of Color on Craft, Community, and Connection. Through interviews, essays, and artist profiles, Hewitt's book highlights the diverse voices of women working in fiber arts and craft. Now, we want to hear from you, too. How has craft deepened your understanding of your history, your community, or yourself? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Now, coming up, we hear from a Hartford native who co-founded a quilt guild called Sisters and Stitches, Joined by the Cloth. But joining us first on Zoom is Jen Hewitt. As I mentioned, she's author of This Long Thread, Women of Color on Craft, Community, and Connection. She's a printmaker and a textile artist. Jen, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Lucy. Now, our listeners may remember uh, back in January, uh, we actually did a show about sewing as self-empowerment, and one of our guests was Tamana Rahman. She's a psychiatric nurse practitioner in New Haven, and she actually sews her own clothes. And Tamana had spoken about her difficulty in finding a craft community here in Connecticut, but she recommended your book, Jen, and saying it was a pivotal step on her personal sewing journey. I wanted to share that with you. I love that. Now, we're going to be talking about your book, but I wanted to learn a little bit about your journey as a textile artist and printmaker. Can you tell us? Of course. So way back in 2008, I was working a very corporate job and I needed a creative outlet. Um, I was working with all these creative people, but I wasn't getting to do creative work. So on a whim, I took a screen printing class at a local community center. And the moment that I pulled my first print, I was completely hooked. And I decided I was going to spend as much time as possible in the studio. Um, And then the economy intervened and I was laid off. And so I had a lot of time to spend in the studio. So for about two years, I printed and with every bit of spare time I had and eventually started a business. I knew that it was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I had mentioned that I learned to crochet from my mother, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about uh, what your relatives uh, in terms of their crafting and remembering maybe some of the first things that you made. You write about that also in your book. Hilariously, neither my mother nor my grandmother taught me how to sew or crochet or do any of those things. my, I found out from my mom just recently that my grandmother, who was a war widow in the Philippines, 
would supplement her teacher's income by going to the villages where she taught and buying woven textiles and bringing them back into the city to resell. I had no clue until about a month ago that this is what my grandmother did. Um, but I did grow up with my aunt, who is hilariously not actually an aunt, but a very close family friend who could sew or knit anything. And we would all sit around after school because I went to school with her daughters, my cousins, and she would watch Guiding Light and uh, knit sweaters <laughs> while we watched. And then we would all hop in the pool because it was Southern California before she went to work the swing shift as a nurse. Mm -hmm. um, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing <laughs> that. And I did chuckle reading about the first thing you remember making at summer camp, the striped purse with oversized plastic button. <laughs> I love that purse and I wish I still had it. Um, but it was in summer camp and I had a lovely teacher who walked me through the process of doing all the little things like slowing on the wrong side so that when you turn it out, you can't see the seams, um, winding a bobbin, all of these things that are not intuitive and that you have to have someone show you how to do. Otherwise, you're super frustrated, especially as a 10 year old. Mm. Again, you're hearing Jen Hewitt, author of This Long Thread, Women of Color and Craft, Community and Connection. We'd love to hear from you uh, again about how craft uh, deepened your understanding of yourself or your history, your community. Our number here, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So your book, Jen, came out, I believe, just in November, and you finished it in the fall of 2020. And so, you know, thinking back to all of these uh, moments, uh, important moments uh, in our collective history, thinking about the origin of your book, uh, talk through with us, you know, how you started to write it and as we went through the last two years, you know, some pivotal moments that really stood out to you uh, while you were writing. Mm. I had originally pitched this book as a coffee table book way back in I think 2017 or 2018 with lots of lush photography and looking for kind of high profile people of color who do these textile arts and crafts. And I put it on hold because that type of book is very, um, labor and money intensive. And then in 2019, the, a blog post came out, um, was published by a white woman in the knitting industry that women of color, particularly South Asian women, were said that had um, colonialist and racist overtones. And that launched really this huge internet pile on on one particular person person who wrote this post and I wanted to pull back and say hey listen it's not just one person in this industry um, it actually is something that is industry-wide and that there tends not to be space for women of color for people of color in a lot of events um, workshops conferences I just don't see us there so let's take a step back and let's actually talk about that um, and I decided to resurrect the book. Um, and instead of having it be a lush coffee table book, I was going to find people of all stripes who participate in these crafts, not just the high profile folks, but also somebody who might just like my aunt do this as a hobby while watching soap operas before their shift going to uh, work at a nurse at a large hospital. Um, people who do this for fun as a hobby, as well as people who do it professionally. 
And I wanted to hear their voices. I wanted to hear their stories. So I identified a few people that I wanted to interview, but also I sent out a survey. I created a survey with my committee of five or six friends who gave input on survey questions and just sent it out to people, posted it and said, I would love to hear your stories. And I thought that maybe I would get a hundred responses over the course of the month that the survey was live. And in reality, I got over a hundred responses in that first weekend and received close to 300 over the course of the month. Wow. So yeah, it was, it was amazing uh, when that happened. I was telling my publisher and my agent that I was shocked, not that there were so many of us out there, but that were so many of us who wanted to spend an hour um, filling out a survey to talk about our experiences. And so tell us a little bit about you know, what you observed from these respondents. Hmm. You know, it's, we're not, of course, people of color uh, are not a monolith that we all come in with very different kinds of experiences. And so while there was some consistency, for example, my favorite is that a huge percentage of people, the first thing they remembered sewing was uh, clothing for their Barbie dolls, which surprised me and I write about it in the book. Um, but a lot of people talked about learning from their parents. And so often the dominant narrative is that people don't learn these crafts from their family members anymore because family members don't, um, don't participate in them. But in reality, I would say probably half of the people who responded to the survey learned how to crochet or sew from a mother, a grandmother, an aunt, a sibling, a cousin. Um, that was pretty consistent. And then the other consistent story was that folks did not feel comfortable in crafting spaces. They didn't feel comfortable going to knit nights at their local craft, local yarn store. They didn't feel comfortable in some quilting guilds. They felt really excluded. And when they did participate, they faced a lot of microaggressions and um, rude questions. Mm. That's something that you experienced as well. Uh, you also write about that, um, the fact that um, you're a woman of color and if you're the only one, you're often getting questions about crafters of color. And I wonder if you can share that with our listeners. Yes, I went to, I was on a, I was in a class, um, a pattern drafting class and I was the only woman of color. I was the only black woman. Everybody else was white. And it was a small group, maybe five people. And I have a fairly large social media following. And so I've been talking about the process of writing this book. And a lot of people had really good questions about the book. Um, and one person said, you know, I, why is it that my group doesn't have um, any women of color? Um, is it just that culturally women of color don't join these groups? And I started to explain why, um, what I had seen, what I had read in the book um, or in the survey responses, as well as talk about my own experience. And then she jumped in and said, but I don't, I don't see color. And I knew that was coming. Um, and so we had a little bit of a breakdown of that. I talked about, you know, you might not see color, but it's something that color is something that I experience in my everyday life. And then I left because I was finished with my work and I decided I was going to have ice cream because the, the experience had rattled me so much. Um, even though I'm prepared for these conversations to happen, it still feels like they come out of nowhere when they do happen and I'm always caught off guard. 
So I went and got ice cream. And I found out from, I think it was the instructor, that the conversation continued while I was gone. And they talked amongst themselves and really got what I was saying. Um, and then sent an apology over to me via the instructor. And so I felt like that was actually a really uh, productive conversation that I didn't need to be present for the entirety of. Right. You write that uh, this the audience for your book is primarily for people of color who are doing this work. Uh, but you also say it's for anyone who wants to learn more. And I wanted to quote here, you write, I want to show that the fiber arts and crafts community is that much richer when there is space for our voices, not as window dressing, but as an important and integral part of this community. So can you Tell us more when you use that, that metaphor, window dressing, and we think about why representation matters. Mm -hmm. Well, in the last couple of years, since uh, 2019, representation has gotten a lot better. And I have to say, representation is actually the easiest part when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, that the, the diversity um, is the easiest part to start with because often it just means inviting people in. And so that's, you know, in some ways the window dressing that you're, you're out there, you're doing this work, you're saying, hey, we've got people of color in our group, we're using black models, using Asian American models for our sweaters and our patterns. We're, that's all really fantastic. But the question is whether or not the inclusion will last. Um, and it's not just about can we get these people to stay? Um, but also, are we creating the environments in which people of color feel welcome, feel that their voices are heard, feel that they have a stake in the business, in the organization, in the company? Um, so when I talk about window dressing, I'm talking about going beyond just the representation and going deeper into the longer term, more sustainable practices of having people of color actively engaged in your organizations. You're hearing Jen Hewitt, a printmaker, a textile artist, and author of the book we're talking about today, This Long Thread, Women of Color on Craft, Community, and Connection. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, coming up, uh, Jen, we're going to hear from a woman uh, who was born in, in Hartford, and uh, she co-founded a quilt guild. But when we think about quilt guilds, they can traditionally be a little rigid. And is this maybe a good example of the lack of inclusivity we're, we're speaking about? Can Tell me more, can, can we think about the respondents to your survey and what they shared with you as well? Hmm. Quite often, and I, I will, I won't, I don't want to single out quilting here because I think all of, all of these crafts have gatekeepers. Um, but quilting in particular is, it is very rigid in many ways. Um, there are quilting, there are many, many standards in how to create a quilt, um, whether or not your points align and your corners are smooth. Um, and I think sometimes this can kind of carry over into the gatekeeping in terms of who can join a quilt guild. Um, subject matter is also another very big uh, barrier to entry for folks. Um, I profiled Sarah, uh, Sarah Trail of Social Justice Sewing Academy too, and she has been publicly scolded <laughs> at major quilt conventions for creating and having her students create political quilts. 
Um, so quilting, I think it's Sean Kimber, who's also interviewed in the book, is meant to be or seen as something comfy and cozy. And when you have people who are different from you coming in and questioning the status quo, it can kind of interrupt, uh, disrupt your sense of quilting as cozy and comforting. Mm. Isn't there a long history, though, of quilting among Black women? And when we think about that, you know, why have why are they made to f- not feel welcome, or why are they not represented in these spaces? Oh, there are so many different reasons why, but mm-hmm. I think it comes back to as so many people said in their survey responses. Um, don't talk about your personal experiences if they're going to make us uncomfortable in this group. Um, There is a very long history of Black women in particular quilting in this country um, and doing all the textile arts crafts, quite frankly. Um, But yeah, those spaces tend not to be comfortable or safe unless the organizers of the group consciously um, make them safe for everybody. Mm-hmm. And there doesn't always seem to be the will to do that. Mm-hmm. And maybe that goes back to the, the gatekeepers uh, that you mentioned. Yes. And I think there's also the assumption, too, that comes up over and over again. Um, and that certainly has come up in response to this book in reviews that I've seen. The assumption that if something is done by a person of color, it isn't as good or as worthy as something that is done by a white person. So the automatic assumption is that the skill is not there. When in reality, the skill is absolutely there. Um, But by choosing not to be inclusive, then you're also choosing not to see the skill. Again, you're hearing Jen Hewitt here on Where We Live, author of This Long Thread, Women of Color on Craft, Community, and Connection. We're going to take a quick break, and coming up, we're going to hear from Susie Ryan, a Hartford native. She co-founded a quilt guild and says, cloth has given me a voice. We want to hear from you, too. How has craft deepened your understanding of your history, your community, or yourself? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's a diversity of voices in the modern craft movement. Uh, we're talking with author Jen Hewitt, who's written the book This Long Thread. She highlights uh, many women, the diverse work of women of color in the craft community. And we were just talking about quilting before the break. My next guest co-founded a quilt guild that's dedicated to preserving the art, history, culture, and traditions of African-American quilts. On the phone with us now is Susie Ryan, who's also an author, a fiber artist, and social justice activist. And she's co-founder and president of Sisters in Stitches, Joined by the Cloth. Susie, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's good to to hear both of you this morning. I mentioned that welcome back because you were on, I believe, about a year ago. We were talking here on the show about witness stones in our state, which commemorate the lives of individuals who were once enslaved, including your ancestor, Venture Smith. And for listeners who may not know, Venture Smith was an enslaved person. He bought his freedom in Connecticut. He documented his life in an autobiography, and it's one of the earliest known books by a formerly enslaved person that was published back in 1798. And so on that show, Susie, we learned that you're also a quilter. So tell us about your deep connection to this craft and the ways you use it to tell your story. Um, so I... I've always been interested in making um, a quilt. Um, my mother taught me how to sew at a young age. She's a expert seamstress trained in Germany um, since, like, junior high for her. And I'm not a math person. <laughs> so I didn't do well with mitering corners and making everything precise. And um, I took a quilt class with a woman... Um, Jamaican descent, black woman, and I fell in love with the piece that she had shown me. And the piece that she had shown me was applique, and I have always done embroidery and uh, some crocheting, but I just fell in love with the piece, and I was like, I can do this, because I, I truly love hand-stitching over using a machine. And um, on my mother's side... Um, there was, there was no quilt making. It was, you know, we had wool blankets with um, satin seams or bindings on them. And on my uh, maternal paternal side, um, there was quilt making, but it was never, it was, it was never really passed down um, in our family from my father's paternal side. Mm. And then um, I just fell again. I, I found a way. I, I guess it like quilting to me with applique or or the story quilts, which I started to create, they also gave me a way to tell stories of our African-American history, my family's history, and I'm always an advocate pushing for African-American history, which is American history to be taught in a public school system. Mm-hmm. You mentioned story quilts, and uh, we read an essay that you wrote about your connection to cloth, uh, titled Cloth Has Given Me a Voice. You noted that Venture Smith also wrote on linen. And so how did you make that discovery? And when we think about the story quilts, describe some of them for us. Okay, so um, the fact that throughout Venture's narrative, he, he, um, he was a very frugal person in, throughout his narrative. And... He actually didn't write the narrative. It was oral history, so that's another reason why 
I love doing the storytelling because I believe that storytelling is the root of our history and um, the fact that his stories have been proven to be accurate throughout um, different scholars researching his work. So his his um, narrative was actually printed on paper woven with linen. And he, during his um, narrative, or throughout his narrative, he's talking about um, the price of clothing and linen, and um, as linen was considered fine cloth, and he was happy with just the regular uh, calico or um, homespun, that's actually what his terms were. Um, and then the storytelling, um, I've created quilts. Uh, one of them that I created, and um, it is telling the story of Ventures 26 Acres that was recently, I'm saying recently within our uh, time frame, um, since 2009, uh, was recently discovered. First, first known piece of property that Venture owned in Stonington, Connecticut. And as a child, my family used to go and go fishing, picnicking, and um, take my grandfather and my uncle's boat, and we would go out to Fisher's Island. And throughout this time, we had no idea that that was actually, like, the very path that Venture had taken when he owned that property in Stonington, Connecticut. Um, and so the one piece of quilt, or the one quilt that I did make, that tells the story is an actual map of that 26 acres. And um, my grandson had found a rock on the property, so I used the rock to, to um, place on the quilt marking where they think that Venture's um, home was, or more like a cabin. That wasn't really true home. More like a cabin. And so... You know, throughout all these years, it's like more research has been done and archaeologists have gone back to the property and lo and behold, my 26-acre, you know, um, you know, sized down piece of um, quilt is really telling a story. And it's also incorporating my grandson because he found the, the stone on the property. And it, it's just that the stone, um, I have to give credit to... Um, Liz Scott, who was a professional, she was an African-American woman out of um, Maryland who really believed in telling stories with her quilts, too, and she used a lot of rocks in her quilts, um, story quilts. So I'm reflecting what I've learned from different people, but I'm also putting in my, my personal history and teaching other people about the history of my ancestor. Mm. Thank you for sharing that uh, with us. You mentioned that first class that you took. So in the 90s, the late 90s, this quilt guild was co-founded by you and a friend, Sisters and Stitches Joined by the Cloth. Tell us about your, your, your quilt members today. Okay, so we, um, it was a, a good friend of mine since college that co co-founded and, and other members and we believe in Sisters and Stitches Joined by the Cloth, um, Colloquial, that once you're a member, you're a lifetime member, and it's just whether, you know, you're active with your membership dues. Um, so at one point, we had 
close to 50 members, and right now we have 15 active members. They are mostly out of Massachusetts. Um, we have member in, two members in Connecticut, one in Florida, and one in New Jersey currently. Um, mm-hmm. We're scattered all over the place in Massachusetts, Boston, Dracut, Worcester, North Brookfield. Mm-hmm. Um, so 20, 25 years going strong. Yeah, so it's 25 years going strong. We've been very active. Um, most of the guild members are, um, they, they really want to see, they're, they're activists for, their, for you know, African-American history being told, too. So a lot of their pieces actually relate to African-American history, too. Um, but not everyone does the same thing. I was speaking earlier, and I said that I, um, my work is not following the rules by, I, I term it as the quilt police, um, and most of the guild members have, you know, slidden off the quilt police rules as far as, like um, Jen had mentioned earlier, having mitered corners and everything lining up, but we have professional quilters in the guild, too. <laughs> so, um, and what we have done is I think we, we stand out because we're in New England where the percentage of African-American people living in New England is lower than other parts of the country. So we, we form the sisterhood. It's truly a sisterhood among the members. Um, we don't just get together for clothing. We get together for art events. We get together for cooking events. Food is a major part of us when we do get together. Um, we had a cookbook published in 2011 by one of our guild members, uh, Crystal Rollins Jackson. Um, our guild members have other lives. They're, they're, some of them are artists, um, not just the health artists, and some of them are retired. But we go around throughout New England displaying our quilts and telling our stories, and we have throughout the years, many exhibits and events, and we have one coming up recently, um, this coming Sunday in Amherst, Mass., mm-hmm. um, for Hands Across the Valley Quilt Guild, where we're actually telling our story and sharing our, our historical quilts, storytelling, um, by request by the, the guild members from Hands Across the Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have I a link. We, we, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so I just wanted to mention to our listeners, we have a link on our website to sistersandstitchesalso.org so that people can learn more about your organization, including some of these uh, these events. You mentioned a sisterhood. I just wanted to read a comment we got on Facebook. Uh, Brenda writes, uh, in Branford, I meet with a group of women every Tuesday evening to knit together. A friend started it about five years ago. We have shared love and pain, family, and life's highlights and struggles. Does that speak to you? That's beautiful. Mm. Um. And we, we do, we do, we do exactly that. We share everything <laughs> and, and we've, um, and I just want to put out there too, that even though we, it started off with a group of black women that did not feel as comfortable in, um, in other guilds, this is the only guild that I belong to. And we do have members that are not of African descent or black, 
and we open arms to any of these women who want to join us and the women that do belong and we've had men in the past too um they just they just feel something spiritual and i'm quoting one of our guild members it's a spiritual feeling and it's a good feeling she says when she gets with the sisters Mm -hmm. so i i want to pat all my sisters on their back for making people feel welcome where we came together because we weren't really feeling that sisterhood from other places that we had been going to um, display our clothes. Jen Hewitt is still with us. She's a printmaker, textile artist, and author of this book, This Long Thread, Women of Color on Craft, Community, and Connection. Uh, Jen, I wanted you to respond uh, to what Susie shared, uh, including when I think back to her essay, uh, she writes, so much of my memory is carried through cloth. That also mirrors a quote that opens your book. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more? Yes, I will read it in a second, but the backstory of this quote is, um, it's what lends the title to the book, This Long Thread. Um, When I sent out the survey response, or survey, I told my editor that I would find the title for the book in the survey responses. I just knew I would. And I received a response from Ms. Cecile Lewis, who is in Minneapolis, um, who is in her late 60s, maybe early 70s. Ms. Lewis, if you're listening, I hope I didn't (laughs) misage you. Um, And she writes, the stitch is a human invention that binds us. It is an old, expressive, and universally understood language. The stitch is ubiquitous in its application. It mends tattered garments and surgical incisions. It holds together the precious elements of haute couture as well as the blocks of a quilt that welcomes a new baby. The stitch closes the winding sheet. Humans have employed stitches throughout history. The stitch is made with a thread that encircles the globe. It travels through continents, cultures, and eras. I am just another hand that touches this long, long thread. That's beautiful. Susie, did you want to respond uh, to, to that quote that, that Jen read? Yes, that, that is beautiful. It, it's, um, it's so in sync with what I always say. And um, to put it in a shorter term from my perspective, um, when we are born, we are swaddled in cloth, and when we pass, we are dressed in our best. So um, the stitching just adds one more extra special link to that whole mm-hmm. statement. <laughs> Uh, we heard uh, Jen uh, Susie talk about you know what prompted her to start the guild and how uh, they have quite a sisterhood now where they feel comfortable and uh, they're not uh, hounded by the so-called quilt police. So I wanted you to respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a story that I've heard over and over and over again about being hounded by the quilt police or the knitting police. Um, there are so many barriers to entry for folks. Knitters often look down on those who use acrylic yarn um, and people get sniffed at <laughs> in quilt groups because they show up and they're knitting something with with yarn they bought at a big box store. Um, I personally don't belong to any textile art groups in a formal way. It's always been an informal thing of meeting up with friends and we all bring whatever we're working on or nothing at all and just sit around and chat. Um, 
one day maybe I'll join a formal group. Uh, but a lot of my crafts, which are, for example, I sew clothing, it's just not very portable. It's not an easy thing to carry to a group meeting. Um, I've just started quilting, so we'll see how that goes. I have been working very hard keeping the, qu the quilt police language out of my mind while I quilt um, and just having fun with it. So we'll see what happens. Go ahead, Susie. The, the quilt police are, um, Jen, thank you for saying, you know, in the knitting and, you know, every every aspect of creating something, making something. But the quilt police are also not specifically just, um, I'll have to say, we have quilt police in our guild. <laughs> so <laughs> so there, there, there are quilt police everywhere, and that's, mm -hmm. that's the beauty of our guild, because we, we know that we do have quilt police, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just to add it, and it seems to be the seniors, and um, I'm that I'm a senior, but I'm not the senior senior, so... <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, I think a lot of the gatekeeping that goes on in, in groups in general is actually done by the more senior members of the group um, yeah. because they're a bit set in their ways, you know, and new folks uh -huh. are coming in with new ideas. Um, uh -huh. And it's there is certainly that tension that happens. Um, definitely yeah. when I've heard stories about that, you know, it's the young 20 something who's super excited to go to a a knitting group and shows up with her acrylic yarn and then uh the older ladies who are and i say older ladies because i am almost 50 so i feel like i'm one of the older ladies now but the older ladies who are using their 28 dollar skein wool hand-dyed yarn are looking down on you know the newbie who's super excited to be mm -hmm. trying something out that's new um same with vanessa vargas wilson who i interviewed for the book who's very very uh well-known as a quilting instructor when she first started out she would go to the quilt guilds with her all her scrappy quilts, quilts that she was making um and the ladies would laugh at her behind her back <laughs> <laughs> well i want to thank Susie ryan for joining us here on where we live again co-founder and president of sisters and stitches joined by the cloth you can find them online at sistersandstitches.org Susie, a pleasure to hear from you again thank you thank you you too thank you for asking me to come back again and staying with us is Jen Hewitt, a printmaker, textile artist, and author of this book, This Long Thread. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Jen Hewitt, a textile artist, printmaker, and the author of This Long Thread, Women of Color on Craft, Community, and Connection. I wanted to quote from your book again, Jen, where you say, making your own clothes instead of buying them is a deeply subversive act. Can you talk about that? Ooh, well, fashion changes, um, and so you're constantly conforming your taste to what is available in stores if you're buying off the rack. Um, but if you're creating your own clothing, you're actually rejecting the seasonality, the dictates of fashion and trends, and making things that fit within your own taste on your own body. 
um, instead of trying to conform with what is sold to you. And that's something that you get into uh, with your conversation with uh, Sonia Phillip. Uh, again, feeling liberated that you're able to create something that's exactly what you want versus uh, what Ready to Wear uh, um, puts out uh, for us to <laughs> to try on and, and, and you know maybe not quite fit the way we exactly. like. <laughs> right. <laughs> You you also interviewed uh, some other uh, people, and I wanted to mention uh, this this essay uh, that uh, Mia uh, wrote. If you could say your name for me, so I don't uh, mispronounce it. But she talks a, a little bit about some of the heavier or harder to describe pieces of of uh, crafting. Let's hear the clip first. I think crafting goes really quickly to things like grief or family dynamics or body image and culture and accessibility, times when you felt ostracized, all of those things are in there. And it's really hard to just talk about it on the surface without suddenly stepping into this really heavy emotional thing, which I think is one reason why I like it. Mm. So she brings mm -hmm. up a lot of themes there, uh, Jen, uh, from grief to body image. And so I wanted to hear your take on that, where the, how the act of making uh, mm -hmm. gets us into these conversations. Well, when you're making something, it requires you to be fully present with whatever craft is in front of you. Um, and that can bring up some really difficult things. I Sometimes I'm sitting and working on my quilt and thoughts arise and I think, oh, I don't want to deal with this, but I have nothing else to distract myself. So <laughs> often I think those feelings are what, what comes up when you're, you're sitting and you're quiet, um, particularly with with body image, I think it comes back to that idea again, that you're confronting your body in a way when you're making clothes that is very realistic, right? That if, if something doesn't fit you, you take out the seams and you try again, that can be sometimes hard. You're not beholden to a number in a store. Um, you're not beholden to a size six or a size eight or whatever it is that people size that people want to be. You're actually looking at your bust measurement, your waist measurement, this works for sweaters and knitting as well. And you're being very realistic about the body that you are trying to fit. Um, and there's a sense of liberation in that too. Again, that idea that you're making something to fit you instead of making your body fit what's out there. Mm. I had mentioned Sonia Phillip earlier um, when she made the point, everything is curated. That will be the word for this period in time, <laughs> curation. So elaborate on that point for, for our listeners. Yes. Um, and I've thought a lot about this. Sonia was actually my very first clothing sewing instructor. So, so much about what I learned about um, sewing clothing, I learned from Sonia. Um, but this idea of curation, I think, is really something that sprung up with social media in particular. And curation is really more about um, the selection of things for display. So when we talk about we're curating our wardrobe, it's about buying things and having things for, say, the outfit of the day post on social media, which may not be as much of a thing anymore. I don't know. Um, so the focus is way more outwards, and it's less about creation and much more about consumption and display, whereas collecting and making are very much about finding the things, creating things that appeal to you um, and making the things that appeal to you. Mm. 
Uh, we got a call from Deb and Tolland, and we're short on time, so I'm just going to paraphrase here that she wanted to note there's even some policing around fabric choice, whether acrylic mm-hmm. or natural fabric. So can you elaborate on that? Oh, my gosh, there's so much gatekeeping on that. Um, you know, I will say that I don't want the barrier to entry for so many of these crafts to be um, financial, that I think we all show up with what we can afford to do, uh, afford to buy and with the amount of time that we have available to us. But yes, um, with fabrics, there's very much a movement towards natural fibers, linen and cotton and silk, if you have the skill to sew with certain types of uh, silk fabrics. Um, And people look down on polyester, um, acrylic, rayon's not natural, is natural, but any kind of non-natural fiber is frowned upon. And really what I want is just for people to engage in these crafts wherever they are, to start where they are. and for other folks to understand that it is in many ways a privilege to be able to do this and to have the time and the space to do these crafts. So whatever it takes for people to get started, um, whether that is buying things from a big box store with a 40% off coupon, um, that's totally fine. We should just allow that. I want to fit in a quick call. Valentine, if I'm saying your name correctly, go ahead, Valentine. What's your comment? Uh, yes, you got it right. Um, I wanted to sh- give it, give a shout-out to Ed Janetta Miller, uh, whose name I was expecting to hear. She's a Hartford treasure. She's a, a quilter, an improvisational quilter. They say her work is in embassies in many countries across the world. I suggest people Google her and see some pictures of these wonderful quilts. And um, she runs classes also. And her name, if you want to Google her, is spelled Ed plus Johnetta, John, like the name, E-T-T-A, Miller. And she's a a woman of color. She's African-American, and she's a Hartford treasure, and I'm surprised not to hear about her. Well, thank you, Valentine, uh, for, for mentioning that, and people can learn about her at johnetta.com, I believe. Uh, Valentine mentioned improv- improvisational quilting. Uh, Jen, did you want to to talk a little bit about that? Sure, I'm not a skilled improvisational quilter, but uh, improvisational quilting really breaks free of the structure of quilting, which is usually done in blocks, so squares made up of triangles and other squares and rectangles. Um, And improvisational quilting is much more about uh, quilting, cutting fabric according to mood, feel, the lines are often not straight. They're imperfect in this beautiful way that, um, you know, quilting is rigid. Improvisational is, it's much more like jazz. It's much more free flowing, but with, you know, with usually the structure that guides us is going to be some kind of movement or some kind of color. Mm-hmm. Aliyah tweeted that she learned to sew when she was young. Leah, quote, I remember my sister and I being the only girls of color. Recently, I took a quilting class. There was a Latinx woman, which was nice. I felt welcomed, and I'm sticking with it. So a shout-out to Colchester Mills Fabric and Quilting. So I just wanted to share that, Jen. Excellent. I love that. <laughs> uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, you know, when we think about the essays, the, the survey responses that um, people can read in your book, This Long Thread, uh, you also, there's another takeaway here about, you know, this isn't about monetizing your craft. And I'm wondering if you, we could end on that. 
certainly. I fully believe in having hobbies that are purely for pleasure and not to be monetized. Um, life is hard. We are expected to work hard. Um, it's expensive, right? Living is just really expensive. Um, and it's important to have an outlet that is purely for the fun and the pleasure and often the community community of it. Um, rather than having to turn it around and sell it and expect to make money out of it. Um, it is also very, very hard to make a living strictly on handmade work. You'll never get paid for the time that you put into it. Um, so in many ways, handmade work is priceless, whether it's amateurly done or expertly done, it doesn't matter. Um, what is really important about it is, is the value that you, the maker, get out of it. Well, it's been a pleasure to hear from you and to learn about the process in this book. Jen Hewitt, again, is a textile artist, printmaker, and the author of This Long Thread, Women of Color on Craft, Community, and Connection. Thank you so much for your time today, Jen. We really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Lucy. It was a delight. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We're back tomorrow. Thank you.